A huge number of voters, some polls indicate a majority, are unhappy with the options at the top of the November ballot. As a pair of nominees, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are the least popular duo in modern U.S. history. I'm Steve Goldstein. On today's Here and Now, we'll talk about whether that means not voting for either of them is acceptable, or does that mean you're shirking your duties as a voter? Plus, U.S. foreign policy and strategy could change dramatically depending on who the next president is. What are the possibilities? I'll ask former U.S. intelligence officer Paul Kinsinger. Also, Pat Tillman gave up an NFL career following the terrorist attacks of 9-11 to join the Army Rangers, but he was killed in 2004 in Afghanistan. A new documentary by the NFL Network looks at Tillman's life on and off the field. And how impactful has the electric guitar been on music and pop culture? I'll ask longtime music journalist Alan DePerna, author of Play It Loud, an epic history of the sound, style, and revolution of the electric guitar. Here and now is next on KJZZ. The news is first. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Good morning. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Coming up this hour, U.S. foreign policy and strategy could change dramatically depending upon who the next president is. What are the possibilities? We'll talk with former U.S. intelligence officer Paul Kinsinger. Plus, Pat Tillman gave up an NFL career following the terrorist attacks of 9-11 to join the Army Rangers, but he was killed in 2004 in Afghanistan. A new documentary by the NFL Network looks at Tillman's life on and off the field. Also, we'll talk about how impactful the electric guitar has been on music and pop culture. We start today's program with another kind of loud noise, the 2016 presidential campaign. The approval numbers for both major party nominees, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, are remarkably low to the point that a lot of people seem to be wondering whether they should vote for president at all or simply leave it blank and explore the rest of the ballot. In a recent column, Bob Robb of the Arizona Republic says you shouldn't feel obligated to vote for someone you don't believe in, that choosing the lesser of two evils doesn't have to be a choice at all. And Bob Robb is with me to talk about that. Bob, welcome. Thanks for being here. Good to be with you. So how did you arrive at this conclusion? Was it an easy one for you? And the reason I ask it that way is because it seems to me that someone who's not necessarily partisan in every election, it, it should be kind of a tough choice sometimes. At least we'd hope to have two good candidates to choose from. Uh, it wasn't a difficult conclusion for me to reach because it is grounded in my belief that we're a free people. And uh, that means that we can and should feel ethically empowered to do whatever we want with our vote and make whatever political statement we want to make with our vote. I certainly understand those who perceive that they have an ethical obligation to choose between Hillary Clinton and Donald Tr Trump because, as a practical matter, one of the two of them is going to be president. Uh, but I also believe it's completely ethically uh, defensible and justified to say, no, I'm not going to accept that constraint uh, and I'm going to do something else with my vote this election. I'm not going to make this direct comparison, but I'm thinking about as we enter flu season, there's the herd mentality of saying, well, even if you don't believe in a flu shot or for whatever reason, you should get one to sort of protect the rest of society. And there are some people who look at, a lot of people look at Donald Trump that way, certainly a lot of people look at Hillary Clinton that way as well to say, well, in fact, would you be throwing away the protection of the community, the broader community, by letting one of these people become president without casting a vote? Um, I think it's different. Uh, you arguably do have a uh, ethical obligation uh, not to infect other people. Uh, but an obligation is something that you owe to other people. And I don't think anyone owes to anybody else um, political participation at all, much less limiting your choices uh, to those candidates that have a practical ability uh, to win. Again, I don't suggest that it's unethical to accept that practical bound, and there's a practical consequence of rejecting it, which is you're deferring the choice of president to those who are willing to make that choice. Uh, but if um, you can't decide uh, who's the – as one of the parishioners in my church at a speech that uh, inspired me to write the column put it, if you can't decide who's the least worst candidate uh, or if the least worst candidate is still so bad in your view uh, that you cannot in good conscience help that person become president of the United States, then I think it's perfectly – ethically uh, responsible uh, to uh, not vote in the presidential election or if your convictions are more aligned with one of the two third parties 
the Libertarian Party or the um, Green Party to say the best use of my vote in these circumstances is to increase the attention that uh, those two points of view, the point of view that's closer to yours, attract by increasing their vote. To me, that's not wasting your vote. Uh, that's using your vote given the totality of the circumstances that you confront and as you see it uh, to the highest and best purpose. Well, based on that conclusion then, are you thinking that people are overreacting to these top two candidates that even if many people find them loathsome, that they're not going to be as bad as possible? Or are you simply making this argument regardless of who the top two would be if for some reason a certain percentage of people had felt that way even though a lot of people didn't, but let's say about uh, when Senators Obama and McCain went against each other, a lot of people didn't like either one, but they didn't feel like, oh my gosh, this, this person's going to be the worst ever. Uh, certainly, um, the question is more poignant to more people uh, given the current choices, but I don't think the ethical calculations mm -hmm. differ. Uh, my conclusion was um, that people should uh, cast the vote that most comfortably fits their convictions in their conscience uh, and tell everybody else to stick it in their ear. I mean, both campaigns are trying to put the guilts on certain segments of their voting base uh, that is reluctant to come around to them. Uh, the Republicans who can't stomach Trump uh, but uh, who think that Clinton's policies would be terrible for the country are being told that a vote for anyone other than Trump is effectively a vote for Clinton. Likewise, young people uh, are being told who, who can't stand Trump uh, but are cool towards Clinton are being told that uh, if they cast – if they skip the presidential race, if they don't show up to vote or if they vote for a third party, which many young people are considering, they're effectively voting for Trump. Uh, and um, I don't think that's true. A vote for Clinton is a vote for Clinton. A vote for Trump is a vote for Trump. A vote for neither of the two isn't a vote for either one of them. I don't know if we rewrite history as we go by and we forget some of the past years, but to your memory and the things you've thought about, are these the two worst major party nominees in your lifetime as far as a pair at the same time? Uh, in, in terms of um, character and background, I would have to say yes. Uh, the choice between uh, Richard Nixon and George McGovern uh, was distasteful for different reasons. Um, Nixon was Dixon and McGovern at the time uh, reflected an um, ideology uh, that um, many people would regard as ruinous for the country. He later moderated and past year in later years he he, he opened a hotel and discovered, you know, the government can be a pain to deal with. Um, but in 1972, uh, he represented kind of the height of, of the um, 1960s radical liberal movement. So based on Trump and Clinton at the top, uh, do you think this will depress turnout? That is a fascinating question. And one of the reasons why I discount all the polls uh, is that I don't think anyone has a clear picture of what turnout's likely to be. An awful large number of people find these two candidates very distasteful. That would suggest a low turnout. On the other hand, uh, people um, paying attention to this race is high. It's almost like a train wreck. It's impossible not to watch. That would suggest high turnout. Um, You've got Trump, uh, who I, the, the one people, the one segment that I thought was sure to turn out were the Trump supporters. Mm -hmm. But now you got Trump going around saying the election's rigged. If the election is rigged and Trump is going to lose anyway, what's the point of a Trump supporter going out to vote? I think even though his strategy was to animate his vote and depress her vote, I think he may be depressing his own vote. So I, I think that, that turnout is an absolute muddle. I have no idea whether it's going to be low, it's going to be high, whether uh, uh, young people and, and minorities are going to be motivated to turn out at Obama levels or whether they're going to retreat back to their old uh, uh, position. And then when people who do show up to vote, which races are they going to vote in? 
it's entirely possible that people will be voting at the top of the ticket and voting differently down ballot or and so to me it's just a complete muddle out there so bob let me read you a, a quote so longtime pollster mike o'neill who we both know wrote a column in the new issue of phoenix magazine his perspective says he's calling a protest vote one for either johnson or stein basically says it's the functional equivalent of casting half a vote for each of the two major candidates or not voting at all and finally, he says, this is not participating in the process, it is abdicating a civic responsibility. So we're getting even past the ethics of it, giving up a civic responsibility. Well, uh, a, a responsibility is the same thing. Responsibility is something that you owe to somebody else. Mm-hmm. No one else has a claim on your ability to participate in politics. And if um, you think the highest use of your vote is to increase attention uh, to the libertarian or the Green Party uh, point of view, that's not wasting your vote. Uh, that's not effectively casting a vote for somebody else. Again, that is using your vote in the totality of the circumstances as you perceive them to achieve what you think is the highest good for the use of that vote in this election. Bob, finally, um, Trump win or lose, uh, how much has that changed the political winds? Do you think it's something that'll die down? Could it affect the next uh, House races in two years? Uh, I think it depends upon whether he wins or loses. I continue to believe that Trump is a one-off, mm. that the Republican Party isn't a nativist, populist, protectionist party. Um, it's a small government conservative party. And and uh, I believe that if he loses, uh, the Republican Party is likely to go back to being that. If he wins... Um, then the Republican Party is a nativist, uh, populist, protectionist party. Uh, and that's a party that small government conservatives will not feel comfortable on, com- comfortable within. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think that then may force uh, political realignment and regrouping. And I may be mistaken. It may be that Trump isn't a one-off mm-hmm. and that the Republican Party has become all those things in which case small government conservatives will face the same decisions uh, if Trump loses. So finally, Bob, are you, uh, have you cast your vote yet? I have. Did you vote for someone for president? I did. Okay. Arizona Republic columnist Bob Robb. <laughs> Bob, thanks. You bet. This is KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. In a couple of weeks, we'll know who the next president of the United States will be. Some Republican critics have argued against Hillary Clinton by saying her foreign policy would simply be a continuation of the Obama administration's. Meanwhile, Democrats and some Republicans believe Donald Trump's foreign policy would be too much of a wild card and could be affected too much by emotion rather than consistency. With me to talk about that for a few minutes and other foreign policy issues is Paul Kinsinger, professor at the Thunderbird School at ASU and a former member of the U.S. intelligence community. Paul, good morning. Good morning, Steve. Good to talk to you again. Good to have you here. So a couple of quick specifics I'd like to ask you about. I want to begin with the latest on Mosul and the the -the on-the-ground fight against ISIS and ISIL. How important is that? Well, we're seeing, at least uh, in the press, a momentum shift. Yeah, no no question. Uh, You know, their high point was really about two years ago when they kind of came out of everywhere and surprised uh, the governments, the very weak governments in Iraq and Syria by taking a lot of a ground and um, and seeming to be a strong conventional force. What really happened, of course, was there was a vacuum of power in uh, virtually all of eastern Syria and in much of uh, northern and central Iraq. And so these guys were able to pretty much walk into these towns and take them by uh, by little to no force and where there was um, where there was resistance by either the Syrian army, or the Iraqi army, you know, these guys are pretty dispirited being out in the middle of nowhere, um, and they gave up. So, you know, ISIS had a good year and a half run where everybody thought they were invincible, but frankly, they weren't, they weren't facing much opposition. Well, in the last year, of course, opposition has formed in uh, largely in the form of Iraq, which, uh, you know, strengthened by the U.S. government, 
and our policy on this. The Iraqis have gradually put together a coalition of forces to take back the major cities that ISIS has controlled. Mosul is the last and most important of these because it is the second largest city in Iraq and uh, a, a key geographic location in the north. It was a major victory for ISIS when they took it. And so taking it back is going to be highly symbolic and extremely important. The next target, of course, in Syria will be taking Raqqa, which is the, you know, the um, informal capital of ISIS, uh, use the term lightly. And, uh, you know, the Syrian government appears to have little real interest in doing this because their only real interest is in clobbering the hell out of Aleppo and forcing the, uh, the insurgents there to surrender so that they have control of the western part of Syria, which is all they really care about. But I think, uh, you know, the guys that we're working with, the U.S. is working with, and the Turks are working with in um, eastern Syria are going to roll up ISIS in, in uh, Raqqa as well. And then ISIS is going to be left with, uh, you know, some isolated pockets of territories in both Iraq and Syria that are less valuable. And uh, the caliphate is going to look a lot smaller. And I think we will see them revert to become to be a what what they'll probably be much better at which is a terrorist organization that hides and uh, creates chaos through uh, bombings and um, you know attacks in Europe and even potentially here over the time but i don't think they will continue to be a conventional organization with ground power in the middle east in the future they uh, their two years of that is pretty much over i think and Paul, stay with us. We're going to take a real short break. Paul Kinsinger, former member of the U.S. intelligence community. And then later this hour, we'll talk about a documentary about Pat Tillman. Stay with us on Here and Now. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix, talking with Paul Kinsinger, professor at the Thunderbird School at ASU, also a former member of the U.S. intelligence community. Paul, in a moment, I wanted to ask you about the recent cyber attacks and Russia and that sort of thing. But before we get to that, because we're also fixated on the presidential election, how big an impact could the winner of that race be in terms of changing foreign policy? Do you think Hillary Clinton will, in fact, continue the policies of the Obama administration? Would be she would would she be more or less aggressive? Well, I think uh, I think Hillary Clinton is actually likely to be more of a, a moderate Republican than a, a liberal Democrat on foreign policy. And you know, I know that feels ironic to many people on both sides of the fence out there, but she's always had kind of a semi-hawkish view, um, middle-of-the-road attitude on, on national security. I think she will um, uh, give a little less benefit of the doubt than the Obama administration has to um, to certain players out there, like maybe Russia. Um, I don't, I do also think she has learned the lesson of boots on the ground in the Middle East, and I don't think we would make the Bush mistake of putting people on the ground in that region in the near term, other than in these very targeted special forces kinds of ways. I think she will continue the Obama doctrine in that sense. I think she'll be a little tougher on some other players uh, in, um, in some of the other categories. From a practical standpoint, does her experience as Secretary of State um, automatically, regardless of policy style uh, or no. policy? Okay, go ahead. No, no question. Her uh, her years as Secretary of State. I mean, I've worked with Secretaries of State in the past, and you know, these people spend all of their waking hours thinking about and working with other leading people around the world and solving and addressing enormously complex problems. So. You know, it may look to the average voter sometimes like nothing ever gets done and they're just jetting around the world um, having diplomatic uh, interactions. But this is uh, really difficult work, and it's uh, there's very few places anymore where the United States can simply tell someone what to do. Those days are long over as well. So I think that's going to be great experience for her, no question, and I think she will also bring a very experienced team of players um, Cutting across both administrations, frankly, I, I will not be surprised to see that she has some of, uh, you know, the Clinton administration from the 90s, veterans from those people, in, from that uh, those administrations in her cabinet. And she might even reach across and get some of the, uh, the Republicans who have, uh, you know, denounced Donald Trump's foreign policy and pull them in as well. If Donald Trump were to win, do you think that he would, uh, his advisors would be more practical or would it be more like the campaign? Well, I, uh, that's a great question, of course. You know, I, <clears throat> I'd like to think that if that came about, he would, um, 
you know, there would start to be an, an enormous amount of pressure on him to reel it in and get real about uh, national security policy and that, you know, um, he would start to feel the heavy pressure of the office and the awesome responsibility is going to be on his shoulders. That said, you know, he's a uh, he's proven to be uh, a very different player all throughout this political process. So, um, you know, <laughs> I don't think we can bet on it. Paul, about 90 seconds left, and it's a complicated yep. question, but I really want to get into where the U.S.-Russia relationship is right now. Yep. Uh, we're paying a lot of attention to hacked emails, et cetera, but uh, yep. from what we don't know, from what's going on behind the scenes, is it a rough relationship right now? Yeah, I think it is. I think uh, there's no question that Russia has, especially under Vladimir Putin, has not been happy with its place in the new post-Soviet Union era. It, it's been 20-some years. They have not found their place yet, and they're still kind of uh, a bull in a china shop in a way. And Putin, I think, carries that even more heavily than many in Russia might, being an ex-member of the Soviet uh, intelligence service. I think he has a lot of, um, you know, grudges to bear against the West. And I think he feels like, you know, he can, quote, push us around here and there when he wants to. I think the reality is that where he feels like he's pushing us around are in places that don't much matter to the United States. I do think the next administration of either stripe is going to want to kind of um, sit down with Russia and start talking seriously about what, what, how can Russia fit into the world order in some way in which it feels appreciated and valued and isn't out there creating more trouble for everyone. Paul Kinsinger, professor at the Thunderbird School at ASU, also a longtime former member of the U.S. intelligence community. And Paul, I always appreciate your insights. Thanks so much. Happy to talk to you, Steve. Thanks. This is KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Poet Richard Shelton has been one of Arizona's most highly regarded writers for decades. His 1992 book, Going Back to Bisbee, won the Western States Book Award. In 2006, then-Governor Janet Napolitano proclaimed Richard Shelton Day on April 22nd. The now 83-year-old Shelton just had his memoir published. The book Nobody Rich or Famous uses the journals of his mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother to tell the family's history. It also delves into his complicated relationship with his father— And Richard Shelton joins me now by phone from Tucson. Richard, the stories in the book make it sound like your grandmother was a heroic figure in your life. Is that true? Yes, my grandmother was. Charlotte Beach, she is in the book, as she started out, Charlotte Adams. She was heroic in many, many ways. And uh, she saved me from a great deal of pain and trouble. And uh, she was always... Uh, very loyal and, and strong. She was a woman who defied public opinion, and she really didn't care. She knew who she was, and she didn't uh, worry about the rest of it. Anyway, she was my savior in many ways. Uh, she she and her third husband uh, were the only grandparents I've ever known. They were great, just great. So I was raised partly on a farm, their farm, and had my own horse to ride and uh, my own banny rooster and my own little bull calf to take care of. And uh, it was a wonderful kind of life. Were there certain memories of your grandmother in particular that, you know, you recalled, I I understand, but there were maybe some details that from the journal, it it made her come to life again for you even more? Well, the journals were not that kind of journal, although they did make her come to life. (laughs) Uh, I, I talk about the journals being a kind of code. They called them diaries, but but women, uh, farm women, care, kept this kind of a journal. And it, each day there was an entry, and it was like the weather, what was being done, the fields were being plowed that day, or what was being harvested, and what they did in the house, like mop the kitchen. And that, that's, that was pretty much the extent of it, although it did record the death of her first child, um, and it, it recorded the death of her husband, her third husband. Mm. But in the very barest, uh, sparest way of ways, um, these were not journals in which they poured out their souls. And um, But they do give you a very good um, idea of the, how busy they were and how, how the kind of work they were doing all the time. 
uh, day in, day out. How much of your parents, how much of your grandmother in particular, did that shape you as someone? Because when people think about you and people who know of your work, they think about this uh, accomplished writer, accomplished poet. To have come from what you did, how much did that shape the person you became? Or did you realize how much it had shaped you? My mother taught me to read when I was three years old. And that probably was terribly important because I started reading early. So in spite of what was going on at home, I could always crawl into a book. There's one scene in which uh, I spent a lot of time up in a tree with a book. And my brother, who is, is rather brutal, is looking for me to have something to beat up on. But I'm up in the tree and he keeps book up. And I'm holding very still with reading my book. That's a kind of uh, typical image of my childhood. I think reading, which my mother taught me, and she was a reader and she taught me to be a reader. And uh, that made all the difference in the world. Then I, I had a way of escaping. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix talking with writer Richard Shelton. His memoir is called Nobody Rich or Famous. Richard, would you describe your family as close, even with the ups and downs? Oh, sure. It was close. My generation uh, was pretty close. The, the generation before mine, my mother's generation was quite cl- and father's generation was quite close. But they were big families. And... Um, my my family was just uh, three siblings, and we were we were pretty close. At least my sister and I were very close. It was not a particularly loving family in the sense that one thinks of that. But uh, as I have a scene in which uh, we are threatened from the outside, and we who have been fighting cats and dogs suddenly unite against any outside force. So we had that. Uh, cohesion uh, the siblings and and the parents that um, we united against any problem that came in from the outside which was basically the law because my father was a bootlegger and and my brother was had a had a record of <laughs> illegal activity by the time he was 10 as you've aged, have you felt a, a greater need to connect with your family's history? I'm going to use the term nostalgic, sentimental, that may not apply to you, but did you feel a need to connect with your family history in some way? Well, I felt curious, yes. And um, the journals that I acquired when my mother died uh, made me very curious about the lives of these people. And the, um, the image, the, the language that recurs in the book is chasing ghosts. I'm always chasing ghosts. So I must have had uh, some sort of fixation. I spent several years looking for them. I I, uh, traveled in uh, Kansas, Illinois, tried to find where they had lived, where they, what what they had seen, what they had done, uh, etc. And I'm not sure it was because it affected me so much. It was just that I was very, very curious about what their lives were like uh, that produced my parents and and then ultimately me. Um, I I guess I never even questioned that impulse to to find out, to find the ghosts and uh, see where they lived and what they did and so on. So much of it, instead of getting on the on the a computer to to find out. I got in the car and drove to Kansas, <laughs> and then I I didn't find much there, so I went on to Illinois, and there I started to find stuff. Titles of books sometimes are meaningful and sometimes not. So I want to ask you about it. When nobody rich or famous as a title can bring about certain reactions, and for me to some extent, it almost sounds like you're saying, "Hey, our family isn't so different from anybody else's," and that's kind of comforting in a way. Should I interpret it that way? Well, yes, but it's actually a line from a poem, and I quote several lines from that poem toward the end of the book when my father is dying, and it's a poem about him. I wanted I wanted to uh, throw the spotlight on him uh, toward the end of the book. There's a long section in, in which he's dying at the end of the book, and I'm taking care of him. Well, that's one of the more powerful parts of the book your relationship with your father. Can you simplify it for us and say, tell us how much your relationship with him changed or even evolved? Well, it changed a great deal. Um, my older brother, who was six years older, was always his boy. 
and uh, I was always my mother's boy, and I was the one that got the education, etc. And uh, and as we grew older, that relationship began to shift. At the age of say 15, I would never have dreamed that that could happen. That that I could uh, get to be really close to him because we were at odds totally when I was, say, 15, his behavior was, was really pretty bad. <laughs> and for a teenager, that's, that's awful. We all changed a, a little bit along the way. But uh, my relationship with him at the end was good, very good. That's 83-year-old Richard Shelton. We've been talking about his new memoir. It's called Nobody Rich or Famous. And still to come on Here and Now, we'll hear about a new NFL Network documentary about Pat Tillman, and then later on, the history of the electric guitar. Get your arm ready. Here we go. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Pat Tillman was a great football player at Arizona State who went on to an NFL career somewhat improbably as a seventh-round draft pick of the Arizona Cardinals. But Tillman became an American symbol of courage and sacrifice when he gave up a multi-million dollar contract to enlist as an Army Ranger following the terrorist attacks of September 11th of 2001. NFL Films and the NFL Network have produced a new documentary about Tillman for their series of Football Life, It premieres this week, Friday nights on NFL Network. And one of the film's producers, Paul Minuski, joins us for a few minutes. Hi, Paul. Hey, Steve. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Um, How do you approach telling the story of someone who was a good football player, but not necessarily incredibly impactful on the field, but whose effect was really felt because of off-field courage, leadership, unselfishness, that kind of thing? Uh, that's a, a very excellent question. Uh, this is our fifth season of, of football life, and pretty much every one of our other subjects, football thing in their life, and, and it's easy to tell their story by showing their football plays. With with Pat, really, what we were trying to do was use his football and his football highlights to showcase sort of what kind of person he was, uh, what kind of person, what kind of teammate what kind of friend and uh you know really the passion that he displayed for football was just symbolic of of what he showed for the other aspects of his life and what were the challenges in finding um some old tape frankly of pat tillman talking there was even sort of a joke that runs through uh, at some part of the film where um he would just sort of say whatever and you'd see the the reporter get a look on his face when pat said a four-letter word on live tv (laughs) how many interviews did he actually do over the course of his life it wasn't that much. Uh, you know, he only played 60 um, games in the NFL, and for three of those years, those Cardinal teams weren't great. Uh, and he wasn't a starter for a, a couple of those years as well. So it's not like there are tons of interviews. Uh, we didn't have any interviews in NFL films. Uh, luckily, there were some stations in Arizona that had done just a few interviews of him, uh, and the Arizona Cardinals as a team had done two interviews of him. Uh, one of them has never been seen before that we were able to get and use for the film. Now, recently, uh, my wife, who is not a football fan, happened to be at the gym and caught a football life uh, of Joe Namath. And Joe Namath is, is a legend for many reasons. And he, off the field, had a lot of stories about him. But most of them were sort of, oh, the old playboy from the 60s, that sort of thing. Um, again, can can you contrast a little bit when... Um, you have someone that people are almost, even if there's other stuff going on in Joe Namath's life post-football, people sort of think of him as a, as a fun, sort of out-there character, whereas Pat Tillman was maybe more buttoned down. Is that a challenge as a filmmaker, too? Yes. No, absolutely. And, and the big thing, you know, I have a big white dry erase board uh, in my office, and me and Steve Menzel, who is my co-producer on the film, the big thing that we try to do, and what's in big letters on this board, is humanize him. And, you know, everybody knows about all the monuments and and jerseys retired and statues of Pat Tillman. But the biggest thing for us was to humanize him and and to make him and make the people that watch the film really feel like this wasn't just a guy in a uniform, be it military or, or football, but this was a real person who had real things happen to him in his life. And uh, I think that was our, the biggest challenge and the biggest thing that we tried to do throughout the whole entire film was to humanize Pat and show the personal side of him. Was it more daunting in the sense that um, a lot of people who know Pat Tillman know him for what he did off the field and not on the field? 
Oh, absolutely. And, you know, and unlike these other football lives, like Joe Namath, like you said, you're, you're the one that your wife watched, you know, he won Super Bowl three, and you know that that moment's going to be in the film. The film. Pat didn't really have those tentpole moments that we like to say uh, in his professional career. Um, he had a couple great games at Arizona State, and there was that great 1996 team for Arizona, uh, Arizona State that we highlighted in the film, but that was hard for us. And uh, what Steve and I did, we had to go through every game he ever played and really look for just little moments where he shined that might not be plays that go down in NFL history, these great plays, but plays that Pat really did his job and, and did it well that we wanted to put in the film. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix talking with Paul Minuski. He's one of the producers of the NFL Networks and NFL Films of Football Life. This one features Pat Tillman. It premieres later this week on the NFL Network. Paul, did it feel like former teammates were, were eager and even comfortable talking about him? I mean, did they did they want to relate those positive memories? Or for some, was there was there pain involved? I imagine with some of these films, you have maybe 15, 20 people who are sort of lined up to want to talk about him. Did people want to talk about Pat? No, absolutely. And, you know, more with the teammates, especially uh, and some of his former coaches from Arizona State and, and from the Cardinals, they were really happy to talk about his football stuff and to talk about him at practice and the type of guy he was, and, you know, all of them going out. It was with the family that, you know, they got a little bit more emotional because of everything that happened to him after his death and the tragic way what happened with the government that to his teammates, uh, they were very, very eager. And we felt bad because there were a lot of guys that originally we had reached out to that we sort of had to pare down our list that we weren't able to get them in the show. But there were a lot of teammates from Arizona State and Arizona and the Arizona Cardinals that we could have put in the show that we just didn't have time to get to. There's one moment that really stood out to me that I wasn't aware of that right after 9-11, it's related by a former Cardinals quarterback, Dave Brown, that following 9-11, the team sort of took a vote as to whether to play and Tillman was the only one who thought they should. What, what did that teach you about him? And, and how did that story affect well, hearing that? The, the biggest part, like we had to cut it out of the film for time, but originally he had said, absolutely not, we're not going to play. And then he came back the next day, and in typical Pat fashion, he thought about it, he contemplated what his viewpoint was, and then he came back and said, no, we need to play this game. Um, and really what I learned throughout this whole process is just, and it sort of changed me as a person, was just Pat's way of seeing an issue, thinking about an issue, debating an issue with somebody, whether right or wrong, just debating, having an open debate and an open dialogue with people to try to either convince him or for him to convince them uh, what his viewpoint was. And this was the same thing after 9-11, that he thought that they should play. And there were 55 guys on the team, like you said, 54 said no, and Pat wanted to play. And uh, that was just his belief. And um, it really showed, even at a young age, how strong he was in his convictions, but yet open to other people's ideas. Uh, is a very powerful thing. Well, Paul, that being said, then, how important was football to Pat Tillman based on the people you spoke to? And how much of it was just part of how he challenged himself in many ways to be great? Yeah, you know, the I go back and forth on that. I think he really did love football, and I think he loved the mental aspect of it. Uh, you know, nobody his whole career in every stage of his life, whether it was high school, college, or the pros, everybody told him that there's no way you can make it. There's no way you're going to be able to make it in high school or college, or, or you know, there's no way you're going to be able to be a professional football player. So I think you're right. I think the challenge aspect of it he really liked. But I really think from talking to his coaches, we had a great story that we couldn't put in the film too, that when he was a rookie, they gave him the playbook. The Cardinals gave him the whole playbook. And the next day he came in and he went to the coach and he knocked on the door and he handed the book to the coach and he said, there are three mistakes in here. <laughs> and the coach said, well, what are you talking about? He said, well, there are three mistakes. You have two typos here and this play is labeled wrong. And, and the coaches didn't even realize that. Um, so I think that the mental aspect of the game, I think he really enjoyed. Paul, really briefly, we've got about a minute left, uh, and I don't want to put you on the spot here, but you know, based on the, the Colin uh, Kaepernick controversy about whether to stand for the national anthem or not, how do you think Pat would, would uh, land on that one? Well, I, you know, I feel like he, I wish that he was here to say that. Uh, just my opinion, I think that he would be supportive of what he was doing, and uh, I think he'd love to have a debate. And anything that opened up discussion, I think Pat would be really, uh, really involved in and really be a part of. Do you think Pat Tillman belongs in the Hall of Fame? 
You know, it's it's tough as a player. I don't I don't know uh, as a person. Absolutely, if there's any Hall of Fame that Pat Tillman does belong, I'd like to see what that is. Uh, if you're just talking about personal side and what he did as a person and as a human and as an American. Paul Minuski, one of the co-producers of the new NFL films and NFL Network production of Football Life. This one is about Pat Tillman and it premieres later this week. Paul, thanks for the conversation. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now in Phoenix. I'm Steve Goldstein. The electric guitar has played a major role in how music has changed over the decades. Les Paul, Carlos Santana, and Eddie Van Halen. Longtime music journalist Alan DePerna has written about the instrument and those who've used it as part of music's evolution in his new book, Play It Loud, an epic history of the sound, style, and revolution of the electric guitar. And he'll be at Changing Hands Bookstore in Phoenix on Friday night at 7 to talk about it. In the meantime, he's here with me. Alan, you used 12 guitars as a framing device to tell the story. How challenging was it to break the instrument down that way? You know, some of them were very obvious, such as the uh, uh, the Rowe Patton A25 frying pan, the first commercially produced electric, Les Paul's stuff, mm-hmm. the, the Fender Telecaster. In some cases, we had to not hedge our bets, but we knew that we had to cover both the you know two iconic Fender instruments at least, the Telecaster and the Stratocaster. Mm-hmm. So, okay, the Stratocaster is Jimi Hendrix's Stratocaster. So worked in a little bit of celebrity uh, celebrity players, too. Also the final chapter, Jack White's Montgomery Ward Airline. Yeah. Uh, now, these are people who've had huge impacts. I mean, the people that you're writing about, the Beatles, you're writing about Jimi Hendrix, you're writing about so many other people. How much of it is the guitar makes the man or the man makes the guitar and whatnot? I mean, how, how much of the popularity and iconic nature of these guitars came from who was playing them? A lot of it did, actually. But the Gibson Les Paul was moderately successful when first introduced in 1952. It, it was phased out in 61. Mm-hmm. wasn't selling anymore. Then in the late 60s, well, first Mike Bloomfield, who played with Bob Dylan, uh, p- picked it up. Uh, also played with the Paul Butterfield Blues Band, the Super Session Records with Al Cooper. Eric Clapton uh, popularizes the guitar in his work with Sean Mayall. You know, all you know, the whole the whole pantheon comes in here. You know, Jeff Beck played a Les Paul at some point, so uh, people became fascinated with that guitar once again. So yeah, that is that is very much an instance where people played it because the leading guitar instrumentalists of the day were, were had 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 adopted that instrument. It's KJZZ's here and now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix, talking with author Alan DePerna. He's the co-author of the new book, Play It Loud. We're talking about the history of the electric guitar. And you can see Alan at Changing Hands Bookstore coming up this Friday night. Alan, let's talk about Jimi Hendrix, because for a lot of people, he was the one that people were just stunned by what he did. And I think it was Jeff Beck, a quote in the book, that has something about how even if he hadn't played it well, he was playing it just in such a way people had never seen, but he was playing it well. Where do you put the impact of Hendrix when it comes to the electric guitar? The impact of Hendrix is is really huge because he... He was the first player to put together a lot of different things. He was he was he was coming off the Chitlin circuit in the American South. He he had really mastered the art of rhythm and blues and the blues. He had he had he had backed a little Richard, as some people know. So from that, not only did he get the whole R and B idiom, the whole you know the whole African American musical expression of that period, but back in a guy like Little Richard, you learn how to put on a show. Right. So he had this excellent sense of showmanship, but he was also paying close attention to what was going on in England, even even before he he arrived in England in late 66. 
I, I found a passage somewhere where he tells, where Hendrix tells Mike Bloomfield when they're in New York together, he says, boy, I'm, I'm listening to this Yardbirds material with Jeff Beck, and I really like what he's doing. Uh, he, was, he was paying a lot of attention to Pete Townsend of The Who. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of the first things he wanted to do when he arrived in London is go and meet Pete Townsend. <laughs> uh, and, and, and his manager was Chaz Chandler, who had, who, had, who had played in The Animals. So it was easy to arrange a meeting. They go over to, I, I think it was IBC Studios in London. And the first question, you know, Pete told me, actually, Hendrix was too shy to talk. So Chaz Chandler asked, he said, he wants to know what kind of amps you use. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and, and Townsend told him, well, I use Marshall amplifiers when I'm switching to Sound City. And, and, and Chandler said, good, he'll have one of both. <laughs> so he, Hendrix was able to synthesize this British thing with the African-American blues thing. He put on a great show, incredibly handsome guy, a great songwriter, a, a great singer. I mean, you know, that's another big part of it. As, as, mm-hmm. as brilliant as a guy like Jeff Beck is, he recorded a few vocal tracks at the prompting of his manager, but he was, he was never that kind of front man that, that Hendrix was. In fact, a lot of the great players, even Townsend, in a way, you could say, was, was a sideman to Roger Daltrey. Yeah. Well, that's another thing that strikes me is I was... You have Steve Vai in the book, Joe Satriani, I think of as well in recent years, someone who's known for playing a certain style, but not being able to accentuate it necessarily with the vocals to go with it. I mean, we think of Hendrix and Clapton. I even think of Stevie Ray Vaughan as someone else who was a, a great guitar player, but we also know their voices. They're very distinctive. Do you think in any way that that takes away from the power of what they did with the instrument? No, not at all. I think in a way it becomes, and, and, and this goes back to blues tradition, you know, B.B. King and even earlier, in a way it becomes this kind of dialogue between the guitar and voice, you know. The singer sings a line and the guitar responds to that line in some way, either, either accentuating what the singer has said or offering another, you know, it's, it's all wordless, but, but you know, just, just, just bringing another dimension to the vocal. So, yeah, I think when you have an extraordinary player such as the ones you mentioned, that 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 ability to have the vocals and the guitar coming from the same source, uh, or even you take a guy like George Benson who would sing along with his guitar solos, it, it it's all the more richer. So no, I don't think it detracts at all. So a recent Nobel Prize winner who uh, got a lot of accolades. Some people thought it was controversial. Was Bob Dylan? Now, of course, I think people who know music history at all will think about Dylan goes electric. Oh my gosh, and the impact that had. Um, how important was that, do you think, as far as the evolution of the electric guitar? I think that was hugely important. This one chapter in the book where I kind of plot the emergence of the 60s guitar hero in, 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 in terms of three really significant festivals, Newport Folk Festival in 1965, mm-hmm. Monterey Pop in 1967, and of course Woodstock in, in 1969. So 65, Dylan going electric was, was huge. Uh, I don't know the extent that people that people realize today, but you know the folk community was very dedicated to playing traditional instruments. They viewed the the, the electric guitar, in, in the words of the folk singer Oscar Brand, as, as as a tool of capitalism. <laughs> this was pop music. This was evil, crass, mass culture. It was something that the folkies really, you know, detested in a way. By 65, Dylan had, uh, this was his third appearance at, at Newport. He had, he had established himself as, a, as, as, as the king of the folkies, as, as this emergent new talent. So here he comes with a leather jacket, I believe a, a polka-dotted mod shirt, if, if, I, if I recall, <laughs> and an electric guitar around his neck, a Fender Stratocaster. He's, he's backed by the Paul Butterfield Blues Band, uh, well, members thereof, and you know Al, Al Cooper on, on on organ. This this loud onslaught, you know, to these, you know, to the folk audience. It was it was really, you know, it was a shock to them. But there was, on the other hand, what it what it did was there was this whole other audience of young kids who had really, and I was one of them, <laughs> young kids who had really been excited about the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and all of that. Yeah. They suddenly merge, and 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 there were elements of the folk audience who were more than willing to go with Bob Dylan in his in his new direction. You know, they could recognize his genius, and you know, and they trusted him enough to say, "Hey, if this is if this is where you want to be right now, we're down with that." So you get this merging of teenage adolescent enthusiasm with the, with the more kind of reflective intellectual aspect of the, of the folk audience. Mm-hmm. 
they're they are they're politicized college students. Their habit of listening is to really key in to the lyric, what's being said. You know, it's 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 not necessarily dance music for them. Out of that convergence, I would argue, comes what was known as the counterculture, the whole hippie thing. You know, there's this this kind of combination of rebellious youth with this kind of, well, we're thinking about the world, we're thinking about politics, we're thinking about uh, race, civil rights, the environment. And that brings you to one of the major themes of the book, which has to do with populism. Largely because of the British invaders, the Beatles and Stones, everybody started to play guitar, Mm -hmm. a lot of people. Mm -hmm. In the earlier days of the instrument, in in the 30s and the 40s, uh, guitars were mainly marketed to and purchased by professional guitar players, musicians. Uh, With the the British invasion, all of a sudden, every, every kid want some kind of guitar. The sales of the instrument go through the ceiling. Rickenbacker guitars who make the brand that, you know, that the Beatles were, were famous for playing had to add a new, whole new building to accommodate uh, the additional demand. So everybody feels, a lot of people in our culture feel, you know, like they, like they belong to the electric guitar or, or, or there's a sense of ownership. I was, I was talking to a guy from Forbes and he said, well, why is it that everybody kind of has a sense that Jimi Hendrix played a Stratocaster, a Fender Stratocaster, yeah. and, and that Eric Clapton played a, a Les Paul, but then he switched to a, you know. Why do people have this knowledge when if you ask them, you know, what kind of violin did Heifetz play or, uh, you know, what, what, what kind of piano did Vladimir Horowitz play or, or whatever, yeah. uh, there isn't that level of engagement of knowledge. And, and the very simple reason is that almost everybody has a guitar sitting in the corner in the bedroom somewhere. You know, some people didn't go very far with it. Others are playing in bars and everything all around the community. So it, it really is this, this great, you know, this, this great kind of populist instrument. Alan DePerna, we've been talking about the history of the electric guitar. He is the co-author of Play It Loud, and you can see him at Changing Hands Bookstore coming up this Friday night. Alan, thank you. Thank you, Steve. And that's all for today's edition of KJZZ's Here and Now. Thanks to Jimmy Jenkins and especially Bruce Drummond for their help on the program. And thank you very much for listening. If you want to hear my conversation with Bob Robb about voting or listen back to our conversation with Alan DePerna about the electric guitar or one of our previous programs, please go online to kjzz.org later this afternoon, or you can download the free KJZZ app to your smartphone. This is member-supported KJZZ FM Phoenix and HD. I'm Steve Goldstein. Have a great rest of the day. It's 12 o'clock.